All right, if you have your Bibles, you can open them or turn them on to Matthew chapter 8. We dove back into our Matthew series last week. You may remember that Matthew finished uh, the Sermon on the Mount by telling us that Jesus was one who taught with authority. And then last week, he showed us three really miraculous physical healings that kind of prove that there is, there is a physical manifestation to back up the authority of the teaching. And then, so what he's doing here, he's taking this pause. We have these three miracles, and then you have six more miracles that we're going to look at. But Matthew seems to be pausing for a very specific reason. You know, in our first verse here, it says that the crowds had grown so large that Jesus couldn't even navigate them. He had to get on a boat and cross the lake. So for me, it's really easy to imagine, you know, being in that crowd, seeing all these miracles, seeing the way that he taught, the way that he backed up what he was teaching with, with the healing, and as we're going to see, even more significant things than physical healing. It would be easy for me to imagine being there and saying, I'm in. I'm following Jesus. I'll be on Jesus' side. And Matthew seems to be very, very intentionally saying, hold on, but do you really know what that means? Do you really know what you're signing up for? In 2012, when Angela and I lived in Salerno, Italy, we were helping plant a church with Juddy and Abby Valiquet. Many of you know Juddy and Abby. This was where they worshiped. We're one of their sending churches. And we were together in the city center one day, and this restaurant owner that I had been discipling came up to me, and he said, Jim, there's this panel that's going to happen in the city center, and it's going to be basically people talking on how we should take care of those who are in prison. And he said, I think there's no other Protestant pastor in the city center. I think they'd have you. And I think it'd be a really good opportunity to share the gospel and talk about Jesus. And I'm thinking, this is great. I mean, what bigger gospel softball can I ask for than going to serve those who are in prison? What could go wrong? Well, about everything could go wrong. I, I went to this place where I was supposed to be and I noticed it was immediately this is a bigger deal than I had imagined so there was this big crowd and not only was there a big crowd this was going to be nationally broadcast on radio and regionally broadcast on tv and so I'm, I'm sitting on the panel sitting right next to this very delightful transgender woman and behind me is this banner that says radical party and so in, in English which is funny radical party And so I quickly realized I'm not here to support an issue. I'm here supporting a political party on national radio, regional TV. And not just was it any political party, as the name suggests, it was the most radically left political party in all of Italy. And so I look down just as the mics are going. I mean, so far left that it makes our left look moderate or even conservative. But... So the mics are going hot and the moderator is beginning to talk and I look down and I see Juddy and a few other friends with their head in their lap, shaking uncontrollably because they're laughing so hard at what I had gotten myself into and they're just trying not to throw me off, but they can't stop laughing. And so for the next week, I'm getting calls and emails and texts from Christians all over the country, people with Campus Crusade and other church plants. What are you doing supporting this party on national radio and my answer was of course I had no idea what I was getting into I'm sorry I didn't ask all the questions I should have asked and I just ended up in that situation and I'm in no way comparing Jesus's ministry to the mission to the mission of the radical party although Jesus's mission is very radical but I think like the naivety 
and the ignorance that was in me that would just show up on that panel and begin to speak, not asking all the due diligence questions, is kind of the, the naivety and the ignorance that Matthew is wanting to show, and certainly Jesus is wanting to show in a few of his disciples at that time. So what I want to do, I want to look at this passage where Jesus is saying, do you really understand what you're getting into? Do you really understand the cost involved in following me? And, and I want to look at this to answer the question, if we, really, if we really want to commit our lives to Jesus, then we're going to have to know the difficulty that the kingdom is going to bring. We're going to have to know the grandeur of that kingdom and ultimately the grandeur of the king. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing this in Matthew 8 and then finish in Daniel 7. All right, so first, the difficulty of the kingdom. There are two people in this passage who are saying, yes, well, the first one, both have misunderstandings, but the first one is saying, I'll follow you, Jesus. Just without asking any question, I'll follow you. And the first one is this Jewish scribe. And clearly Jesus understands that there's something this Jewish scribe does not understand about following Jesus. So we see in verses 19 and 20, Matthew records this. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I think it's safe to say that Jesus wouldn't be invited to any church growth seminars today. I mean, here you have a man who seemingly is pledging his allegiance to Jesus, his full allegiance. And not only is this any man, this is a Jewish scribe. So this is a a man of the religious elite. This is a man of influence. And Jesus seems to be discouraging him from following him. I mean, on the surface, it could feel a lot like, let's say, a magic player. Or a Disney executive comes and says, Jim, I I want to come and I'm interested in worshiping at OGC. And me saying, I don't don't think you really know what you're getting into. Maybe not. That's that's what this feels like. So why would Jesus do this? Jesus understands that this scribe, he doesn't fully understand what he's saying. He has a very nearsighted understanding of the kingdom. He, he has a very simple understanding of the kingdom. He thinks that following Jesus in this life and in, into his kingdom is going to be all roses and puppy dogs. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not what Jesus is saying that he's here to do. But this scribe, he looks at Jesus more as maybe a political revolutionary who is going to overthrow Rome, Rome and make, make this restore the, the glory of Israel and make this life fundamentally easier for everybody involved. But what this man doesn't understand is that Jesus isn't coming to bring us into harmony with this world in this life. I mean, following Jesus fundamentally brings us into conflict with this world. Those who find, those who enter the kingdom and follow Jesus, they will be opposed in this life. So this man isn't fully considering the cost of what he's saying. And if you remember the parable of the sower, where Jesus equates sharing the gospel with sowing seed. And and he explains why certain seed bears lasting fruit and why others don't. It seems like Jesus clearly had this man in mind as an example of seed that is sown on the rocky ground. Do you remember how Jesus explains the seed that falls in the rocky ground? This is going to be jumping ahead to Matthew 13. Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Sounds like this guy. Yet he has no root in himself, 
but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So the scribe is thinking that if he commits his allegiance to Jesus, things are just going to work out better in this life. But he doesn't understand that most of the promises that Jesus offers, although some of them, yes, are for this life, most of them, and certainly the most grand of them, are for the next life. And it's like Jesus is thinking here, trying to say, look at me, scribe, look at me. Yes, good things are happening, the kingdom is growing, people are being healed, but do you see the challenges that are being brought on me because, because of these choices? I don't have a home. I don't have a bed. There is no Holiday Inn Express on this journey. And by the way, do you know where this journey ends? On the cross. So if if these choices mean this kind of difficulty in this life for Jesus Christ, why would anybody else think that their life is going to be any different? Now this doesn't mean that we can't have homes and cars and beds and retirement plans. That's not what this is saying. What Matthew is saying is that we need to be willing to give them up if that's what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in this life. Because we don't get to depict, we don't get to decide what following Jesus means, only Jesus does. And so for some people that will mean that it's gonna, it's gonna make out for a better life. But for other people, this will require their very life. And I have to imagine this would be hard for this first century Jewish leader scribe to hear. But in many ways, I mean, it's harder for, it's harder for us as 21st century Americans to hear the same thing. So I don't, I'm so thankful to be born in the 21st century American West. I mean, there there are just so many blessings that we experience, but we have to understand that there are some ways that our culture shapes us that make certain teachings like this harder than most of the rest of the world, because we have whole subsets of Christianity designed just to accommodate our desire for a a comfortable Christianity. But this isn't what Jesus is teaching here. We want the benefits of following Jesus without any of the challenges. I mean, there's a reason that there's no Disney movie that says you need to take up a different ethic for a different kingdom that is going to fundamentally contrast with all your natural desires. I love Disney movies, but I hadn't seen that one. You know, but Jesus is not offering this a la carte Christianity where we get to choose, you know, these blessings, but we want to leave these challenges. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. So many of you might remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany during the rise of Hitler. And, and at some point, he had to decide Jesus or Hitler. And he chose Jesus and the Nazi party executed him for that. And so here is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer defines this term, cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, forgiveness without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand, is like the man who who sells everything that he owns to buy the field with the treasure in it. And this makes no sense unless that treasure is worth more than anything he has. This scribe is looking for a form of cheap grace. But Jesus is saying, my grace is costly. But it's worth it. And we see that it's worth it. In the second man, when Jesus is trying to help him to understand 
the grandeur of the kingdom. Look at verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This sounds so insensitive on the surface. I mean, how could Jesus tell somebody whose father is dying, you can't even go to his funeral because I require you instead of just going home and being a part of this funeral. Now, to be fair, I think if Jesus wanted to say this, he could, he's Jesus, but most scholars don't think that's actually what he's saying. Because in that day, you had to bury the dead the the day that they died. And so if this man had lost his father that day, then he wouldn't have been with Jesus. He would have been participating in the funeral already. What likely this man is saying is, my my, my father's old, you know, I want to pass through this season at the very least, and then I'll come find you, Jesus. Or he might even be saying, my father's old and he wouldn't really like me leaving my job to come follow you. So let me wait until it's more convenient. Then I'll come follow you, Jesus. And Jesus can see that this man is basically saying, I'll follow you if, I'll follow you but, I'll follow you when, I'll follow you when you meet these circumstances that I have established for following you. This first man, he didn't know how hard the kingdom would be. The second man, he doesn't know how grand the kingdom would be. When you see the grandeur of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there are no if-onlys, there are no but-ifs. And I've seen so many college students over the years, either explicitly with their mouths or implicitly with their lives, say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but after I'm done having my fun. And I've seen recent grads say, yes, I'll follow Jesus one day, but after I you know, find a spouse and have kids and establish my career. I mean, middle schoolers and high schoolers, it's easy to think, well, one day I'll follow Jesus, maybe when I'm my parents' age. But the call of this passage is to make Jesus a priority today, to make that decision today. Because in these situations, when we choose fun and sex and careers and money and marriage over Jesus... What we're really saying is this is where I find my value. This is where I'm going to seek the fulfillment of my desires. This is where I'm going to look for my salvation. Because saying not yet to Jesus is the same thing as saying no. And so Jesus is saying here, you don't realize, you don't realize how much better the kingdom is because if you saw the grandeur of the kingdom, you would drop all of that willingly. Before he was probably the, one of the greatest theologians and philosophers and Christian minds of humanity, Augustine lived with his mistress. He, he was in, in a very different lifestyle and he heard the gospel. And when he heard the gospel, he was torn to the core and he prayed a prayer that I think epitomizes this guy right here, the second disciple. His prayer said, Lord, make me good, but not yet. When Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, he's talking about the spiritual dead, 
Let the spiritual dead wait on people to die, but you have a greater call. And when you see the grandeur of the kingdom, these but ifs and ifs onlys, they go away when you see the degree to which God is pursuing us and that Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah who would fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies, who would fulfill all the Old Testament laws, who would come here, live the life that we can't take on the punishment in the form of the wrath of God on a cross for our sin and then give us everything that he earned with his perfect life. He hands us the ability to be loved, perfect, sinless children of God. And then when we believe in him, we receive the Holy Spirit. We begin to see the difference in our lives. We begin to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ himself, knowing that one day his kingdom is coming back and that we will live and reign with him forever with no sin, no strife, no grief. When we realize that, the but-ifs and the if-onlys, they just go away. They begin to seem ridiculous. And now we have this opportunity in this brief little moment of human history to be a part of this kingdom coming. Angela and I have a friend. She's a, a single woman about our age. And she got this. She understood this. And years ago, she decided she was going to move to, I think, arguably the most dangerous place in the world to be, to, to be a Christian. There's an unreached people group, and this people group at that time, and they may still be, I don't know, was the most prolific exporters of terrorism in the world. And so she identified this people group. She went into this people group, and, and she was identified by the terrorists as somebody to kill. The, the police actually told her, we've captured this terrorist and on his phone are pictures of you. You, you don't need to be in this, in this country. You're, it's dangerous for you. And then uh, a little while later, they discovered a YouTube video of, of terrorists and religious leaders in this area identifying her as somebody to kill if anybody can find her because she was one of only three Westerners who spoke the native language of this people group. And she was translating the Bible into their native tongue for the first time along with some other people. She got this, but God protected her and she saw unbelievable things happen in her ministry. One time this woman came to her and she said, I've I've had a dream. And in my dream, there was this man who was clothed in white and he told me that he was bringing a new kingdom and I had to come to you to find out more about this kingdom. And as it happened, the passage that she wanted to use to explain the dream to this woman was part of the Bible that had just been translated into their native tongue. This is the kind of thing that we get to be a part of. But in the 21st century West, it's so hard when we're distracted by so many different things. I mean, never before have we been busier as a people? Never before have we had the ability to go and be entertained the way we do now. Never before has it been, has, has it been so much pressure to keep up with those around us. And we see this coming into the church. You know, the church thinks the way that we can overcome the distraction of the world is by being louder and fancier and funnier and flashier, not realizing that this is just one more big distraction from the thing that we need to understand and see the most, the grandeur of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The spiritually alive, we will see that kingdom and we will drop everything to follow that king, but that will never happen if we don't see the grandeur of the king. This is the last part. So something 
very interesting happens in verse 20 of our passage. If you know to look for it, Matthew uses for the first time in his gospel this phrase, son of man. Now, son of man is Jesus' favorite title to talk about himself. It's used 81 times in all the gospels. 79 of the 81 times Jesus is talking, using it to describe himself. And Matthew is now using that hugely important term for the first time in his gospel. So we need to pay attention and, and ask ourselves, what does it mean, this term son of man, and why is Matthew using it now? So the term son of man, it comes from Daniel chapter 7 that Michelle read earlier. And I'll read it again. Now that we have some context. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it's really interesting to me that of all the titles that Jesus could have chosen. He, he chose this one, but it makes a lot of sense if you know what Jesus is doing. So this title is important for two reasons. First, it clearly identifies Jesus as the one who has come to fulfill all these prophecies, who is the one to whom all glory and all dominion would be given forever. All peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations would bow to him. So it's super clear when Daniel sees this figure, he says it's one like a son of man. So a son of man means human in that day and age. But he's saying there's something more. There's something, he's human, but there's something more. So you have this, this human component and this divine component. So it's super clear that this term identifies Jesus as the Messiah who would come, but it's also vague enough that it could be missed. You know, because it just means, that because the term son of man just meant human, it could have easily been missed by people and misunderstood that, that Jesus isn't just saying, they could think he's saying he's a son of man when he's really saying he's the son of man from Daniel 7. So why would Jesus want to be vague in any way? Well, last week we saw Jesus heal the leper. And then what did he say? Don't go and tell anybody. So we we learned the term last week, veiled disclosure. Jesus was disclosing who he was in a veiled way because he knew that when the, the full knowledge of his claim, not only to be the Messiah, but God himself was revealed, he would be killed, which he was. But the time had not yet come for that. So Jesus wanted a term that clearly described who he was, but would give him the time on this earth to fulfill what he was here to do. And this is a term that should not and likely was not missed on the scribe. And even those who were really familiar with the term, who understood what Jesus is claiming here, it was still confusing to them. So there's one crowd that Jesus is talking to. They understand he's claiming to be the son of man. And then he tells them that he will die by being lifted up on a cross. And so this is how John records the crowd in their confusion. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So here they're saying, we, we know about the Son of Man, but we know that he will remain forever. But you're saying that you're going to die. How does, this, how does this match? How are you the Son of Man? And what they don't realize, it is the death and subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ that inaugurates this king, kingdom, that makes all of this possible. So they, they see 
following Jesus as, as simple as switching political affiliations. One man wants to do it, one man doesn't, but it's so much more because he's bringing a whole new kingdom. And then when Jesus stood before the council, before his execution, the high priest looked at him and asked him this. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see who? The son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So death doesn't finish the son of man. Death brings the son of man where he rightfully deserves to be at the right hand of the father. So Jesus is saying he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of man, the long awaited Messiah. He is the person that that God promised to Abraham. He said through you one day all people, all nations will be blessed. He is the person that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 receiving this glory, being sent out to pursue his people. There's this continuity all the way from Genesis to Revelation of Son of Man. And Jesus is this person. So what was promised to Abraham is being seen now in Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to follow him into this new kingdom that he is inaugurating. So how do we do that? How do we enter this kingdom? By making Jesus our king. And to follow Jesus into a new kingdom, it requires moving beyond some sort of boundary. You have to leave the old kingdom and walk into the new kingdom. So if if we thought about it in terms of going from here into Canada, all right, that would take a lot of time and resources, but we are not in Canada until we have crossed that border. So when we're in Orlando and we haven't, even, we haven't even left, we are 100% outside of Canada, right? But then the moment that we get just feet away from the border, even though we're so close, we are still 100% outside of Canada. So these two men, their, their toes were on the line of the kingdom, but they were 100% out because they did not see the grandeur of the kingdom and the grandeur of the king. And so Matthew's call is to know the kingdom that we are called into. That we would weigh the cost. Again, which is such a difficult thing to do in our time with all these distractions and all these comforts. But do you know in some countries where following Jesus might require your very life, at baptism, I know at least in one country, the pastor will ask the candidate, Are you willing to be baptized knowing this could cost you your life? And the response is, I am willing, Jesus is Lord. In another country, I know of a seminary that has a part, as a part of its training, how to jump out of buildings in the second and third floor without breaking your legs. Because that's going to be required. If you're going to be in homes and teaching the Bible and leading worship, there will be persecution and you need to know how to flee and this is going to benefit you. So Matthew's call, Jesus' call, is to weigh the cost and then to bathe in the glory and grandeur of the kingdom and the glory and grandeur of the king. Make him our king. Because remember, I said we live in this brief little time where we can jump into this kingdom. And I know 2,000 years, it doesn't, it doesn't seem brief, but when you, talk about, when you think about the expanse of human history and certainly the expanse of eternity, this is such a brief time, but this window to enter the kingdom, it will end. 
It'll end when we die, and it'll end finally when Jesus comes back. And John records what that will look like at that moment when this window ends. In Revelation 19, we read, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury on the wrath of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the primary implication of this passage is to see Jesus as king and make him such in our hearts. But there's a secondary implication for all of us who have already done it because Luke actually, he finishes the same story with a slightly different twist. This is how Luke finishes this story. Luke says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now I think it's a safe bet that Hardly any of you have ever plowed something in your life. And I think it's a really safe bet that no one's ever done it with an oxen before. (laughs) All right, so as I understand it, because I've never plowed with an oxen, it's very important as you go that you look forward and back as you go so that your lines can be straight. If you only look backwards, that will be disastrous. You'll, You'll not have any kind of field to plant anything. You have to look forward and backwards. And that's what Luke is saying. Once we're in the kingdom, we need to stay focused. We need to look forward at the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom here. But we need to look back at the blessing of all that he's done in his life, death, and resurrection to guarantee that promise. We aren't to look back at the old kingdom. We aren't to look back at our old life. We're to look back at the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we have this opportunity here this morning to do that as we celebrate communion. As a church family, we get to look back at the finished work of Jesus Christ as we see the blood broken, which symbolizes his body on that cross broken for us. As we get to taste the juice that symbolizes his blood that flowed for us. We remember what he's done and we look forward to all the promises that he has for us in this new kingdom. That one day we will live with him without sin, without strife, without grief for eternity. That is the Christian hope. I'm gonna go through the details of what it looks like to take communion or partake in the Lord's Supper here in just a second. But before we do, I wanna pray. God, it is such a blessing. We are so thankful to be able to come here to be reminded of what you have done for us, the lengths that you've gone from Genesis to Revelation to pursue us and to redeem us. And we thank you for this this opportunity here right now to both look back at the finished work of Jesus Christ and look forward to the work yet to be fully consummated. And we pray that you would set these elements apart from their normal use and that you would 
you would use them in some mysterious way that we cannot fully understand, not simply as a representation or a symbolism, but as a real means of grace to draw us closer to you and to secure your promises more significantly in our hearts. We thank you for this opportunity and we pray that you would use it in a way that only you can by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.